I was uh, introduced to RFK by my social worker a year after uh, I, my grandparents were granted me full guardianship of me. And uh, it's basically like been a big family ever since. It's like a place where I can be safe and like let things go that I've been struggling with and basically like smile and have a lot of fun while also like reconnecting with people who understand what I'm going through. You can like share what you've been through and like things that you've been holding on to, you can kind of let go and like it like helps me breathe easier knowing that like I can share with people and like they're gonna understand me. But my first birthday party was like awesome. There were so many people like there who were like supporting me and cheering me on and it was just a great night. We got to dance and have fun and I felt really like pretty and like it was a great experience. So I really enjoyed that. You can basically talk to anybody here and they'll all tell you that track and RFK have given me the opportunity for them to share their story and feel like they've been heard. And that's really important for children who've been through the foster care system or have been adopted because we're not heard often. We're kind of, we feel ashamed of our situations and we don't really get to experience a lot of things that other kids get to experience. And so coming to track and basically like being given this giant family, it's, it's very therapeutic and it's good to know that like we have somebody there. So it's, it's definitely impacted my life a lot and I know it's impacted other campers because we get to share our stories and we get to feel heard and that's really important for a lot of us. So that was the testimony of a girl who has attended both of the camps that we do here. So we sponsor an organization called Share the Love, which is a local organization, but they put on these camps called Referral Family Kids Camp and Teen Reach Adventure Camp that are connected to a nationwide organization. So there are, I don't know, I think there are maybe hundreds of camps, lots of camps all over the U.S. So we sponsor the one that's here for Marion County. So uh, that girl went, when she was elementary age, went to the Rural Family Kids Camp because that's elementary age. And then when she aged out of that, she went to track Teen Reach Adventure Camp when she was in middle school and high school. She is also a fairly regular attender here. Um, not when she started going to camp, but because of camp, she was introduced to us. And so she is here pretty much every week and she's sitting here today. Um, so one of my goals in this morning's sermon is to motivate you to volunteer at one of these camps this summer. And something that stuck out to me that she said in the video, and I don't know if you caught it, but she said it toward the end, I think it was three different times she talked about how important it was to be heard. Did you catch that? She said it felt so good to be heard. And so I wanted to ask you a question. Um, For someone else to be heard, what action do you need to take? And I don't want you to overthink it. Like, I want you to just give me the the, the real answer. For someone else to be heard, what action do you need to take? Listen. So I wanted to use that thought as a way to address an objection that some people might have about helping out at camp. Um, Some people might say, I don't have what it takes. I couldn't possibly minister to some young person. I wouldn't know what to do. And I would say to you, um, do you know how to listen? Like, is is listening, like, above your pay grade? Like, is is that, is it like, well, I I don't think I could do that. Because that's what the young lady in the video said she needed. And so I want to be clear, um, I don't mean for this to be some sort of high-pressure pitch this morning. I am aware that there are tons of legitimate reasons someone cannot volunteer at camp. Um, Some people work jobs where they cannot take a week off in the summer, 
Okay? They have a job, and particularly in the summer is when that's the heavy season, and they cannot take a week off in the summer, and they need that job to provide for their family, so they cannot do it. There's some people who have a criminal record, or they have a history of abuse that would make them unsuitable for this particular um, ministry. There's some people who are here who are under 16 years old, and so they would love to help out, but they cannot. You are not yet old enough to be a volunteer. There are some people who have physical disabilities or illnesses that prevent them from serving. Um, There are some people who have family commitments, or they will be out of town at the time, and they can't be in two places at once, okay? And so I just wanted to say, like, I get that. I get all of that. In fact, I get all of that so well that I would encourage us at a church, as a church, if someone in this church isn't volunteering at camp this summer, and, and you don't know them well, don't even ask them why, okay? Like, don't, when someone says, oh, are you going to be at camp? No, I'm not going to be at camp. Don't go, well, why? All right? Um, unless you're good friends with them. You can get away with stuff with good friends. But like, people you don't know, like, mm-mm. don't make them say out loud, like, I can't handle the flashbacks of my dad abusing me that would happen. Don't make them say out loud, like, um, before I was a Christian, I got in trouble with the law a lot, and I got a record, and I just, I can't, I wouldn't pass the background check. Like, don't, don't make them say that out loud. Like, mind your own business, okay? Um, um, unless they're a close friend. I do realize close friends talk about that, so you'll have to figure that out. Um, but I'm just trying to say, don't demand that people you don't know, like, give you an explanation, okay? Let's, let's not make this into, like, a high-pressure shaming environment. Amen? Okay. But... The reason I started off this sermon the way I did is with the idea of allowing a kid to be heard is if your reason for not volunteering is I couldn't possibly minister to a young person, I I, I don't have what it takes. I just wanted you to know you may be overestimating the job and underestimating you. So the title of this sermon is Four Reasons to Show Compassion. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you a list of four reasons to show compassion. I actually have two goals this morning with this sermon. The first one is the one I already said, which is I want to motivate people to serve at camp. My second goal this morning is to explain some of what the Bible says about compassion in general, like unrelated to camp, so that people who are here who are not going to get involved in camp can apply this part of God's word like to their life in other ways, unrelated to camp. And for the people who are going to be involved in camp, I would like for you to have four reasons to show compassion um, so that you will show compassion at camp for the right reasons and for good reasons and that you would do it the other 51 weeks of the year when you're not at camp because this topic that we're going to talk about this morning, Christian compassion, it's, it's way bigger than camp, right? Okay, so let's go ahead and give you the four reasons. Notice it says four reasons to show compassion. It is not the four reasons to show compassion. I'm sure there are more. These are just four reasons I came up with. Okay, so we'll start with the first one. The first one is commanded. One reason to show compassion is because it is commanded. God tells us to do this. We see it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go to Deuteronomy first. Deuteronomy chapter 26. If you have your Bible, you can start turning there. Deuteronomy is found in the Old Testament. It is in the Israelite law, like it is their law. So their nation had laws, and we're about to read some of it. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do something we've actually done quite a bit lately, which is we're going to start with the Old Testament, notice something that was given to Israel in particular, and we'll probably acknowledge that some of the stuff that was given to Israel in particular does not apply to us because we are not the nation of Israel following their laws. And yet we're going to notice there's a principle within this that does apply to us, that does apply to the church all these years later. And so we'll go to the New Testament and we'll see that. But let's start with the Old Testament and let's start with Deuteronomy chapter 26. 
This is verse 12. When you have finished paying all the tenth of your produce in the third year, the year of the tenth, you are to give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. So this was one of their laws, okay? Many Christians have heard about the idea of tithing. This is actually one of the verses that talks about it. The word tithe is just a synonym for the word tenth. I think this could have been translated um, paying all the tithe of your produce, right? In, in the third year, the year of the tithe, right? There were times where the people in Israel were supposed to set aside 10% of something. Usually it was agricultural goods, which you can tell that's the case here. The people that were farmers were supposed to take 10% of the food and they were supposed to do something with it. Um, it seems to me when you look through the Old Testament, there were multiple tithes. It was not just 10%. There were multiple 10%, at least two, if not three. I think this, is, um, one, this one's an interesting one. Um, it seems to me this one was a tenth of the food, and it was to be done in the third year, the year of the tenth. So they're, giving, uh, they're, they're, they're setting aside food for people, and they're doing 10% of their food, but they're doing it once every three years. So 10% once every three years is how much per year? Three and a third percent, that's good. About half of you could do that. And I, half of you, you are welcome to keep coming here. But that wasn't difficult math. Okay, so three and a third percent per year, it looks like this particular tithe was, right? And it was for what? Well, they were supposed to take this food on the year of the 10th and they were to give it to, and it lists the groups, the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Why were they to be given to these people? And it seems to me the answer is because these were vulnerable populations among them. These were people who were vulnerable of starvation. That's my guess, and it's a pretty good guess because I want you to notice it actually says, give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And if you're wondering why, so that they may eat, right? That's what it says. So, so the, the assumption is these people were vulnerable to starvation and they wanted to make sure that they showed compassion to these people who were having a rough time. They wanted to show compassion to these people who were vulnerable. So the Levite, I'm not 100% sure why he's in there. I mean, I do know part of the reason is because the Levites were not given a land inheritance like the other tribes in Israel. There was one particular tribe in Israel. All the other ones got land, and so they grew crops from their land, and they were able to eat food from the crops they grew. The Levites did not get land, therefore they could not grow their own food. I think that's why he ends up in this list, the Levites do. However, they were mentioned in one of the other tithes also, so I don't know why they're in two. But anyway, obviously the Levites were one of the people they were concerned about as far as they can't grow their own food, we need to look out for them. The foreigner is probably in a similar situation. This is someone from outside of um, the nation. This is someone that I think is now living within the nation and probably in the same situation in the sense that he does not own land. He is not able to produce his own food. Then you have the fatherless and the widow. The widow is in a situation where her husband has died and her husband is the one who is providing for her. Now how is she going to make it? Well, they're going to take care of her. Same thing for fatherless. The fatherless, so we've got a kid here who doesn't have a father who is um, providing for him or providing for her, so they would provide for them. They would show, it was, this was compassion that was built into the Israelite law. Now, I don't assume that they did this in like, so every three years, it says you are to give it. I don't assume that they just took 10% of their crops, an individual farmer, takes 10% of their crops, finds an orphan, gives it to them and then walks off, right? Because how in the world would the kid, the fatherless be able to even manage all of that? And then if, none, no, if no more is given for three years, like people are gonna starve in the meantime. So my assumption here is there's in their towns, there must've been some sort of like storehouses 
And the way that people who were not able to eat would eat was the Levite and the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow would come to the storehouse. Every three years, 10% of the food was put back into the storehouse to resupply it for the next three years. That's my best understanding of what's going on here. What I wanted you to notice most of all is that in the Hebrew laws, like in the Israelite laws, compassion was just built in. Looking out for vulnerable populations and trying to care for them was just embedded in their laws. Now, not all of the specifics of this apply to us, that it has to be three and a third percent, it has to be every third year. We don't even have Levites anymore, right, that we're able to go find, um, at least most of us. Maybe some of you have a Levite, I don't. Um, So some of this doesn't apply to us exactly, but the principle here of compassion for the vulnerable populations, that continues on. Right? That continues on, and so you can see that in the New Testament. So let's go now to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll see instructions now that were given to the church, not to Israel. The instructions were given by Paul to a guy named Timothy who was supposed to then pass them on to the church. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. I want you to notice the same principles found here. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them, notice, who's the them? The them is the rich people from the verse before. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to, what's the word? Share, willing to share. Let's not share with other rich people. That's share with people who have less than them. Share, share because they want, to, they want to look out for people who don't have enough. Be generous and be willing to share. Look, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come so that they may take a hold of life that is real. What was commanded in the New Testament to the Christians was, hey, don't put your hope in wealth. Don't be arrogant about it. Be generous. Give it away. Give stuff away in order to look out for other people. And in doing that, you're storing up treasures in heaven. So, um, I think I can look at a passage like this and say someone like me is supposed to remind you of these things. To not be arrogant, to not set your hope on your wealth, but rather to be generous and to be willing to share. Now, I could imagine someone here could say back, "Mm, I don't think so. I don't think this is for you to share with me. Um, Because if you go back to the top of the paragraph, Mario, these are instructions that are given to a specific group of people. These are instructions given to the rich people, right? And Mario, I'm not rich, so this is a wonderful paragraph in the Bible, but it doesn't apply to me, okay? You don't get to tell me that I don't get to be arrogant and I can't put my hope in wealth and I have to be generous because that's what the Bible says for rich people to do, right? Okay, I will grant that. Now let me explain to you why I think you're rich. The reason that I think you're rich, and I would say this probably the, probably the majority of the people in this room I think fall into this category. And the reason why you don't maybe think that you do is because I think in our country, we have a faulty definition of the word rich, okay? Not the one that's in the dictionary. I'm sure that one's fine. I'm saying the one that we use, especially when we combine it with the word people, rich people. The definition that the average person that I know has for rich people, I think is a faulty definition. You wanna hear what it is? This is what I think I hear most people say. Rich people are people who are richer than me. That's who rich people are. And, and the me is whoever's defining it. Whoever the, me, whoever the person is that's defining the word rich person, rich is richer than them, whoever they are. What a faulty definition. How unhelpful is that? So nobody's rich. Like if you ask anybody, nobody's rich. It's just people that are richer than them are rich. So people that don't have a car think that people who do own cars 
are rich. Man, it would sure would be nice to be rich like them and drive wherever I want. People that own Hondas think that people who own Lexuses are rich. People who own Lexuses think people who have their own plane that they think they're rich. Everybody thinks somebody else is rich. And so what I would encourage you to do is not compare yourself to the rich neighborhood down the street from you. I would encourage you to compare yourself to all the other humans on the planet. And if you do that, I think you will realize the vast majority of the people in this room are rich people who live in a rich country. This is certainly about us. We are the people who are to not be arrogant and set our hope on the uncertainty of wealth. We are the people who are to be generous and willing to share, storing up a good reserve for the age to come. And therefore, this is commanded. So that's the first point. Why would we show compassion? Because in the Old Testament and New Testament, we see that God tells us to do this. Now, here's the second reason. The second reason is balance. I think that you should show compassion because it will bring balance into your Christian life. At least for some of you, I think it will. You might say, what do you mean by that? I think the best way I can do this is just explain uh, James chapter 1, verse 27 to you. So if you have your Bible, turn to James. James 1, 27 is a pretty famous Bible verse. And this is what it says. It says, um, Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Pure and undefiled religion is this, well, sorry, it's before, our, before God our Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. A very interesting Bible verse. As best as I can tell, this would be James, the brother of Jesus. And he is, he is defining what true religion is. Okay? What does true religion look like? How is it that we're supposed to act? What is it we're supposed to do? What is pure and undefiled religion? According to him, it's two things. Right? He says, this is what it is, and then he gives a phrase, and then he uses the word and, and then he does another phrase. So you can see there's two things that he thinks of when he says, this is what true religion is. So what are they? It is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. That's phrase number one. Then we have our and, and here's the second thing, to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's interesting that James sums up true religion that way. Here's what it is. I want you to look out for the orphans and widows, and I want, to keep, I want you to keep yourself unstained by the world. And you look at those two things, and I don't know, it's very powerful that he sums up all of religion that way, because I think it works. He's summing up, he, he, it seems to me everything we do sort of does fall into those two categories, right? There's the stuff that you're supposed to do, and then there's the bad things you're supposed to not do, right? Do you see how these are kind of emblematic of the Christian life? I mean, I think he means it literally. You're literally supposed to look out for orphans and widows in their stress and keep some, some, yourself unstained by the world. But these two commands are sort of emblematic of bigger concepts. In fact, I'm pretty sure, I don't think James would say that you should limit the mercy and the compassion you show only to orphans and widows and any other kind of suffering, like, nope, nope, don't pay attention to it. No, of course this is emblematic of, this is, a, this is saying look out for people who are vulnerable. Notice there is suffering in the world, and if you can do something about it, alleviate said suffering, right? Do the right thing, but then you kinda, he kind of ends with, and then, and then don't do the wrong thing. So you've got half of religion is, hey, go out there into the world and make a difference doing the right thing, and then the other half is, oh, but also you need to be separate from the world and not be like them. You shouldn't be singing what they sing and saying what they say and spending your money on all the same things they're spending on and valuing all the same things they value on their YouTube channels. No, you're not supposed to be polluted by this world. 
So you've got to be like away from the world in one sense. I'm different from them. I'm not going to do the wrong things that they're doing, but I want to be in the world and I want to be alleviating suffering within it. I want to be helping the vulnerable. And so as I looked at this verse, I just thought it was very interesting that those two things are there. And then I thought about it. I think I was in my 20s when this dawned on me. It seems to me that when I think about the Christians in my life, I notice that a lot of them lean one way or the other when it comes to these two things, meaning that they emphasize one more than the other, that they're good at one of these two things more than they are the other one. Have you ever noticed this with friends in your life? Because I have. So, so we have some people who are Christians, and it seems to me they are the people who look after orphans and widows in their distress. They are, we'll call them like do-gooders, right? There is good that needs to be done, and they're sitting there going, we got to do it. These are generous people. These are compassionate people, right? Many of them start like nonprofit organizations to end world hunger or to stop child sex trafficking or whatever it may be. Some of them don't start organizations. They just support people that do, but they get involved in these things and they go, we've we've got to do good, right? We've got to show compassion to these people. We need to be generous. And then I know of other Christians who are much more abstainers, Right? They're much more rule keepers. They're much more, I don't want to be polluted by the world. Right? I got a long list of rules here, and it's like, okay, this is the stuff that's bad, and I want to make sure I don't do any of the bad things. Right? And I'm not even talking about legalism. I'm just talking about people who read their Bible and notice, huh, there's a bunch of stuff in here that God says is bad. I want to make sure I don't do that. And then I'm going to look around and notice, but everybody's doing it. Hmm, I'm going to not do it. I don't want to be stained by this world. And so I look at this and I see these these kinds of people in my life. It seems a lot of Christians lean one way or the other. I would imagine there are probably some people in this room, there's probably some of you in this room, you are a do-gooder in the sense that you are a compassionate, generous person who genuinely wants to help people and even lives your life helping lots of people. And simultaneously, you're so stained by this world. Like the stuff you watch is the same stuff they watch and the way you talk is the same way they talk. And the stuff you value is the same. Like, you're, 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 you're so polluted by the world. You're just like them, except, I mean, except that you're generous and you're compassionate. We're kind of just swept up in all of their stuff. And then I would imagine there's probably some people in this room who are very good at not doing bad things. Okay? I bet you. I bet you there's plenty of people in this room and you're like, I'm pretty good at not doing bad things. I got a list of things. I know they're bad. I don't do them anymore. Right? And I imagine there are probably some of you rule followers, some of you don't do people, who are, are concerned about not doing the wrong thing, but are not showing compassion to people who are outside of your little world, people who are far away from the rules. And so I thought to myself, maybe I would show you all this verse and just say to you, hey, if you notice that you lean one way or the other, consider doing the other one more. I will just speak for myself. When I think about religion in my own life, I, I lean more toward don't do bad things as the way I think about religious duty. I lean more toward don't do bad. Camp is really good for me. It is very good for me to go to camp and care about people and listen to other people who need me to. So that's the second reason. Let me give you the third reason. So we're showing compassion. Number one, it's commanded. Number two, it can bring balance into your religious life. Number three, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So the third reason, I call it thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That is a very famous phrase. It's famous because it's from the Lord's Prayer, which is very famous. 
And the Lord's Prayer is very famous because it's in like so many movies and TV shows. I think that you could have shown up here and it could have been this, today could be the very first time you've ever walked into a church building in your life and you still probably have heard, thy kingdom come, thy will be done before today. It's just one of the most famous phrases in the Bible. And so I wanted to go ahead and look at the original context where Jesus set it in and what we can see that we can learn from it. So this is Matthew chapter six, starting in verse nine. Jesus is teaching his followers how to pray. And I want you to notice what he says. He says, therefore, you should pray like this. And then he gives them a model prayer. He says, our father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Most of you probably, if you grew up in church and stuff, you probably heard this as being said, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? But hallowed be your name means the exact same thing as your name be honored as holy, okay? So this is just, this is a more modern translation, but this is the same prayer, okay? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now look at verse 10, the next one. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, many of you grew up with thy kingdom come, thy will be done, but it's the same exact thing. So Jesus taught us to pray like this. He taught us to pray for his kingdom to come. He taught us to pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if Jesus taught us to pray for his kingdom and to pray for his will, isn't it also implied that we should cooperate with making it happen? Like if we're praying for God's will to be done, shouldn't we also, when we're done praying, do God's will? Does that make sense? I think it does. Now, you might say, well, no, no, it doesn't say that. This, he just said pray like this. He didn't say do it. He said pray it, right? He just said pray thy kingdom come. That doesn't mean you have to do something to get a kingdom to come and, and your will be done. He said that we're, we're supposed to pray that God would cause his will to be done, right? That we don't have to do his will. We're supposed to pray that he'll do it on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, you can interpret that way if you want, but you don't interpret it that way with the very next phrase that's in the Lord's Prayer. You know what the next phrase is? Can I have it up here? Give us today our daily bread. That's the next part. I don't know anybody that goes, yeah, you're supposed to pray for that. You're not supposed to do anything about that, right? I've never met a Christian that says, this is what you do. You pray for bread, and then you sit, and you wait for it to fall out of the sky. No, of course we pray for bread, and then we work for bread. And so, of course, we, if we could go back to the verse just before it now, of course, we pray for God's kingdom in this world, We pray for God's will to be done on earth, and then we cooperate with that, right? We try to make it happen. We should try to do God's will on this earth. We should try to work in the spreading of God's kingdom on earth now. On earth as it is in heaven, I think, means that we are supposed to try to make earth as much like heaven as we possibly can. Now, that brings up an interesting thought, though, because I can imagine someone go, well, yeah, that sounds good, but that's not going to happen. So I wanted to explain to you a little bit about the kingdom of God, like what the Bible says when it talks about the kingdom of God, because there are two ways that the Bible speaks about the kingdom of God, and they almost seem like they are in contradiction with one another, Um, and yet they're not. And in fact, sometimes it's the same author that talks about the kingdom of God in these two different ways. And in fact, I think there are times where it's even found in the same sentence. So you know they're not contradicting. You can tell there are these two things. The kingdom of God in the New Testament, as best as I understand it, is described as something that is already here and is not yet. 
We see this throughout the Bible, and like I said, I think sometimes it's even in the same sentence, that it's already here and not yet. So what do we mean that the kingdom of God is already here? What I mean is the king showed up, and the kingdom began. Like Jesus showed up one day and said, the kingdom of God is a hand. The king showed up and established his kingdom. And those of us who believe in Jesus, we are citizens of his kingdom, and we are to do whatever the king wants. We are to have whatever the values of the king, that's what it is to be for the whole kingdom as we live in God's kingdom here on this earth. The kingdom is here, and we're in it. And yet there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is not yet, not in its fullness. There are a lot of times where the Bible talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as this thing that's going to happen where God shows up and inaugurates this sort of world where there's nothing bad and everything is the way God wants it to be forever. That there will come a day when there's no more death. That there will come a day when there's no more sin. So mortals will become immortal and sinners will become people who don't sin anymore. They'll be perfected, they'll be glorified. Dead people will be resurrected. Bad things will become untrue, right? That there will be no more mourning and no more grief and no more pain and no more disasters. There'll be no more death, there'll be no more sin. One day God's going to make that happen. The fullness of that kingdom has not arrived yet. The fullness of the kingdom will not arrive before the return of Christ. And that brings up the interesting question because I said, let's make the earth as much like heaven as we can. Why? Why in the world would we work to make the world a better place if it's not going to be the way it should be until Jesus comes and does it? That's a good question, isn't it? Why attempt the impossible? Why start a job we can't finish? Here's my answer to that question. In fact, I don't even know that this is really my answer. I think I read this in a book somewhere at some point and went, that's right. And so I don't know what book it was, so sorry. But I'm going to tell you this. I think at some point this was pointed out to me and I said, oh, that's true. And so I now point it out to you. We work for world renewal, knowing that we won't reach perfection. For the same reason, we work for personal renewal, even though we, know we won't reach perfection. Does that make sense? For some reason, when it's the whole world, it's kind of hard to understand. But then when you just make it about you, you're like, oh, wait, no, no, I get that. Okay, that I'm not going to be perfect until Jesus comes and I'm glorified. Things are not going to be like, I'm not going to be how I ought to be forever until God makes me the way I ought to be forever. I get that, right? And yet, what do you do in the meantime? Anybody go, well, then it doesn't matter. I just do whatever. It doesn't even matter because I'm just not God's. No. How many of you in this room, almost all of you, keep trying to make you a better you? I've heard so many Christians that they say, I know I'm not going to be sinless, but I, I keep trying to sin less. Okay, why? Because there's something in us that knows we should work to do what God wants done starting now and every day between now and the day when God makes everything the way it's supposed to be. So why would we show compassion to the fatherless? Because thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, here's the fourth reason. And this one will be short. I just want you to get like the motivation for our compassion. It's from God. And so reason number four is love of God is connected to love of others. We see in the scripture that love of God is connected to love of others. For this, I will draw your attention to 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses 16 and 17. 1 John 3, verses 16 through 17 gives us the motivation for why we show the love and compassion we are to show. Starting in verse 16, it says, this is how we have come to know love. How? How do we know? How do we know what love is and what it's supposed to be? He laid down his life for us. 
Who's the he? It's Jesus. Yeah. This is a reference to the gospel. How do we know what love is? Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. He died in our place and he rose again and he offers us eternal life. He died in our place so that our sins would be forgiven and we would get not what we deserve, but what he deserves forever. He showed us love in that way that he laid down his life for us. Now look at what he goes on to say. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? So God's love for us, as shown through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, and our love for God in reaction to what Jesus did, all of that is connected to our love for others, right? We love because God loved us. We love, because we, we love others because we love God. Now, technically, the passage I just cited only refers to loving brothers, right? Um, which would be a reference, I think, to fellow Christians. But we know from the other passages in the Bible, we are actually supposed to love everyone, including our enemies. Amen? Yeah, Jesus said that. All right, so I'd like to end this morning by showing you a video. The video is a trailer for a movie. It was a real movie that came out um, in 2013. So 11 years ago, this movie was in theaters, and it's based on Royal Family Kids Camp. And there was a real guy who apparently was a filmmaker, and he volunteered to go to camp. He went to camp, saw what happened, and went, whoa, this story needs to be told. People need to know about this. So he made a movie on it that came out 11 years ago called Camp. And in the movie, uh, he, it's not a documentary. It's not like he just showed, hey, this is what happens at camp. He wrote like a drama that revolves around and takes place at Royal Family Kids Camp. So it's a story of this camp counselor, and he's a bad camp counselor. So if you watch the movie, don't be like, this is what they want us to do? No, the guy in the movie is exactly what we don't want you to do. But there's this bad camp counselor who's the kind we don't want, who volunteers at this camp, and it changes his life, and it's a cool story. And so I just want, to, I want you to see the, the trailer for this movie, and then I'll say some things at the very end. If you want to watch the whole thing, um, it is available on Amazon for, for rent. Um, but I will just warn you, if you watch it, you may volunteer. <laughs> so let me close by reminding you of this. Whether you go to camp or not, Christian compassion is commanded by God. It could bring balance to your religion. It is part of thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And it is motivated by God's love for us and our love for God. Let's pray. I've been asking you this all morning, God, and I just ask it one more time. I pray that you would provide for Share the Love, the two camps, Teen Reach Adventure Camp and Royal Family Kids Camp. I pray that you would provide for them enough volunteers to be able to do the work that they're going to do this summer. And I pray that you would make much of that provision be through the, these people right here. I also pray for the people in this room who are not going to be involved in this or for the people who are going to be involved but have 50 other one weeks of their year to live. I pray that you would help us to be people who have the compassion you've called us to. I pray that we would obey your commands. We would be generous and willing to share. We would look after orphans and widows in their distress. I pray that we would keep ourselves unstained by the world. I pray that you would help us, that we would love others out of the love that we have for you and from the love that you provide for us because you loved us first. 
I pray that you'd help us in the ways that we ought to be a part of your kingdom and do your will on this earth. And so I just pray that you would help us, I guess, that, that, that camp would get enough volunteers this year, but I pray for us as a church, bigger than even that, I pray for us as a church that you would make us into a compassionate people and you would help us as individuals to be compassionate, generous, willing to share people who are also unstained by this world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.